We have this GPS in our car, and uh, the map system in it is 10 years old. So every once in a while, we'll be driving around, and uh, if, if we're using it, and uh, it'll say, you have left the, the, the mapped area. Ooh, you know. You have traveled on roads outside the mapped area. Wow, kids. It's very exciting. This is probably how Ferdinand Magellan felt. It's just <laughs> a funny thing to uh, be like, yeah, we don't know where you are anymore. Uh, and that's the thing with old maps, is uh, when maps get old, you're kind of like, is this, is this thing any good anymore? And you know, that's really a concern a lot of people have about the scriptures. One of the criticisms from a skeptic who's wary of Christian faith is, is the map still good? You guys are working off a pretty old map. And there's even Christians, uh, more, more and more today, particularly in Canada, where we're really not sure the map is any good. You know, a short cursory history of, of the church in Canada is that in the 70s, uh, large sectors of the mainstream churches, uh, the United Church, which was a, uh, the culmination of a number of Presbyterian churches, the Reformed, many uh, of the uh, uh, Reformed uh, churches and even some of the Lutheran churches back in the 70s, many of them were like, we're not sure the map is current. So they started saying things like, well, we're not sure the scriptures are inerrant, we're not sure they're infallible, we're not sure Christ really resurrected bodily, maybe that was really more of a metaphorical thing. They weren't really sure the map was, was any good. And uh, C.S. Lewis had a great way of, of, uh, of poking us in the ribs as we consider you know, our own intellect as moderns. And he would say, you know, we tend to look at things with a chronological snobbery, like we're the smartest people group that's ever walked the earth, that our particular culture at a particular time, at a particular point in history, has the market on truth. And all of the other cultures and all of the other generations before us have somehow not been as lightened as we are. There's kind of a chronological snobbery. And so sometimes we look at the, the scriptures and we're like, I'm not sure the map is good. Well, our text today is Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We've been working through Ecclesiastes chapter by chapter, systematically and methodically looking at the wisdom uh, that God gives us through this book. And one of the things you discover is that the author, Solomon, who introduces himself in the first chapter with the Hebrew word, the kohelet, which means the deep investigator, right? The, the collector of deep thoughts who knows where an argument is going. That's what it means in the Hebrew. It means he's our philosophy teacher. What we discover is he keeps pointing at reasons why it's... it's uh, making a tremendous argument that the map is still good. That God's wisdom is, is timeless. And the faithful guidance of his word is timeless. This God is timeless. And the, the way in which he does this is by, is by poking at the human heart. And in the year 2018, when science continues to advance and technology continues to advance and human achievement escalates uh, at, at, at a rapid rate, at a mind-numbing rate, the world that these little babies here at Redeemer are growing up in is incredible. The things that they will, that they will see invented in their lifetime is astounding. All of these advancements, but the one thing that does not advance is the human heart. 
Because just as Solomon looked through the corridor of history, and we today in 2018 can look through the corridor of history, we have all of the exact same problems. We have all of the exact same concerns, and we're asking the exact same questions. We still have the problem of violence and oppression and sickness and disease and death. We still have the problem of injustice and oppression of the strong constantly manipulating and, uh, and, and, and uh, pushing down the weak. We still have the problem of greed. We still have these problems. And we still are asking the same questions. What's life really about? What's of true value? What is truth? How do you know you have truth? Is there such a thing called absolute or prepositional truth? What has real meaning in life and on what basis does it have meaning? We, we ask the same questions that all of the great thinkers of the ancient world were still asking. And so Solomon is provoking us by poking very deeply at the human soul, deeply at the heart to say, you want to know something? The map is still good. Because when it comes to the human heart, there's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, the first six verses. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight. For you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. And as you do not know the way of the wind, or how the bones are growing in the woman who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you don't know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. This is God's word. Now we're going to unpack this text the same way we've kind of been unpacking all of Ecclesiastes, and really the way that we approach God's word, by asking three questions. The first question we're going to ask is, what does this mean? The second question we're going to ask is, how has Christ fulfilled this? And then the third question we're going to ask is, how do we live in light of it? Now, if you're new to the Bible, if you're exploring Christian faith, it's important for you to understand that as I go to unpack this text, the Bible is not a static instruction manual for us. It is a dynamic epic about a Savior who rescued us. And everything in the text is revolving around that Savior. That's what an epic is. It's either anticipating him, or it's foreshadowing him, or it's preparing our hearts to believe and receive him, or else it is like the gospel accounts, you know, explaining him and giving great accounts of him, or else it's like the New Testament letters, looking back now on what that great Savior has done and how we live in light of the truth of him being who he said he was. So that's how, if you're new to the scriptures, how you, I want you to, to maybe have that framework that this isn't just static instructions as I unpack this text. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, but it is a dynamic epic that finds its truth and its gravity in a savior. So these aren't cold instructions from a distant deity. These are warm words of wisdom from a loving father. So what does it mean? Verse 1 says, cast your bread on the waters, for you'll find it after many days. In the ancient world, you did your trading by seas. You did your trading by the waters. And so you, you would uh, you know, 
put your stuff on a boat, it would go across the waters, you know, it would sell or you, it would come back. So basically, there was a long time before you saw, saw ROI in the ancient world. So this is kind of a text that could, want, in, in one sense, in a practical sense, Solomon's saying, listen, guys, there's a long time before your ROI. So you should probably diversify the way that you kind of do your business and cast your bread on the waters because it's going to be a long time before it it comes back. So that, practically speaking, that's how the ancient world would have understood this, this little phrase, this little Hebrew phrase, casting your bread upon the waters. What it's provoking is that it's naive to expect that life is going to work out predictably. Right? Sometimes ships went down in the ancient world in the waters too. Right? So it's naive to expect that life is going to work out predictably, but it would be wise to expect and not be surprised that you're going to have seasons of uncertainty. So practically speaking, this is how the the word of God is guiding us here. In verse 2, it goes on to say, give a serving to seven or eight, right? Give some bread to seven or eight. In other words, live generously. So here's his, here's, you know, his thought as it progresses. Not only is, you know, the ROI on your investment uncertain, but the length of your life is uncertain. See, when you read that passage, it kind of goes, hey, we don't know what's going to work and what isn't going to work. We don't know how long we're going to be here. Do you understand everything? Do you have a comprehensive understanding of the future? Live generously. Give to seven, give to eight. This is practically speaking what he's encouraging, right? The, the author is provoking you to consider how are you going to approach life? And he does it in verse three. And, he, and in verse three, he gives two poetic images, right? Clouds raining and trees falling. Both of those things happen without your permission. They happen all the time. They do not ask your permission. Clouds just rain when they rain. Trees fall when they fall. They fall to the north. They fall to the south. They do not ask you. They just do it. And this is, so, this is the philosopher's way of saying... There's a way you need to think about life that is going to be infinitely more ha- helpful than the way that you think that you're thinking about life. And so, he, so with every phrase that he gives, he's constantly provoking us to consider our smallness. Because like all of Ecclesiastes, his goal is to avert our gaze away from our smallness and contemplate God's greatness. So he gives this metaphor of the clouds and the trees, this unpredictability in the natural world to get you to consider the unpredictability of your life. And what's, what's the one thing we all wish we had when you, when you get, think about it? We wish we had predictability in our life. We wish we had future security. We wish we had it all figured out. I can't be the only one in here that feels this way, right? It, what's the one thing that we're always, all of us are willing to pay for? We're willing to pay for anything that seems to offer to bring greater predictability, greater future security. Who do we listen to? We listen to anyone who seems to be offering advice that's saying, if you'll take this advice, it's going to bring greater predictability to your life. It's going to bring greater security to your future. That's what we spend money on. That's who we listen to. This is how we operate. And so verse 4 kind of illuminates, you know, how, how much, how committed we are to this idea of predictability. We're all, it's almost like our hearts are like the scientists from the Jurassic World franchise. You know, like, we've got it all figured out. No, this time we've definitely sorted it. Nothing could go wrong. You know, and then, oh, we didn't have control, right? It's like the, the theme of, you know, it's like the, the theme of the Jurassic Park franchise is control is an illusion, right? You plan it out to the nth degree, and you're sure you have control, but it's an illusion. You don't have control. And so, verse 4 kind of illuminates all this. He says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. That's a poetic device 
our, our English equivalent would be paralysis by analysis. He who sits there and just continually observes the clouds and tries to predict the wind ends up doing nothing. That's what Solomon's saying. You're, you're so, you end up getting crippled by the idea of trying to control your life, and you can't control your life because you're small, and you don't like the idea of being small, and everything around our culture says, no, you're not small. You are a bloody superhero. And Solomon says, no, hold on a second. That's going to be a very anxious and stressful way to go through life if you believe that in your heart. If at your core you believe you're a hero, and then life happens and tells you you're not a hero, and the doctor calls and says, I have bad news, and oh my goodness, I'm not. Uh, I'm, wait a second. Or the economy shifts or something happens. And we have a crisis. So Solomon is trying, Solomon, not just Solomon, because really God superintended all of the scriptures. So the wise wisdom of the word of God is to say, you know, it isn't going to be liberating to go through life that, like that. But there is a liberation that's available. And so, uh, the one who's so busy analyzing the wind, predicting the direction of the wind, the seed is still in their hand. They didn't do anything. The one busy analyzing clouds, afraid it might rain, the harvest rots in the field. So the passage is, is teaching us that um, if we are driven by the need for predictability, and if we are driven by the need for security, we're not going to live an outward-facing life of generosity. We're not going to be given bread away, because you need all your bread. Give to seven, give to eight, cast your bread on the waters, live generously. Well, if there's no God, that's pretty stupid advice. Because you're going to be constantly, you're going to be constantly uh, battling this fear of lack and that there's not going to be enough. And that you're not going to have enough. And so this call to generosity doesn't make any sense. Because in the ancient world, you know, liberal, think about how crazy this is. It's 2018 and we think, well, yeah, but there's lots of people, preacher, who don't have their faith in Christ at all and they're incredibly generous. They live with tremendous generosity. True statement. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to claim the moral high ground on generosity by saying, if, you know, Christians are therefore more generous. Here's what I'm saying. In the ancient world when this was written, you weren't just like doling bread out. Like you didn't just walk down the street and buy more. You see how radical this is? He's provoking them to consider where their trust is located. How can we live wisely and generously? Well, where's your trust located? As he, as he kind of starts to unpack this. We're not going to live lives of generosity if we are committed to predictability and committed to safety and committed to security. We're going to live inward-facing lives totally crippled by worry. We're not going to give away bread. We need all our bread. We're not going to give away our time. We need all our time. We're not going to give away any of our finances. We need all our finances. We're not going to give a listening ear to somebody's problems. We've got our own problems. We're going to, cur- we're going to be curved inward. So that's what, that's what the text means. So how, then, does Christ fulfill this? I mean, how does all of this anticipate the good news of the gospel, which is why we all come to church in the first place? You see, Jesus walks out this wisdom perfectly, just like Jesus walked out all of God's wisdom perfectly because Jesus was God incarnate. The Son of God trusted God the Father with his life, and so the Son of God gave his life. It was a cosmic, scandalous generosity, the cross, the otherworldly generosity of grace, the forgiveness of all of your sin, 
that God would come to those who did not deserve the bread, and he scandalously and generously gave of himself the living bread. And I mean, he just gave it. He didn't wait to say, well, let's just see if there's going to be any ROI on these people. I mean, what are they going to be like? I mean, should I really die for them? What if they're not generous? What if they're not kind? What if they live myopic lives curved in on their navels and they wake up every day and all they do is think about themselves? I mean, do I really want to give my grace to these people? Do I really want to forgive them of all of their sin so that apart from anything that they do, they stand before me justified based on the sacrifice of my son, Jesus Christ, the bread, the living bread? Do I want to do that? Yes, this is our God. This is the wonder of why we gather on Sunday mornings. We are recipients of, a, of an unfathomable cosmic, cosmic levels of generosity. Generosity that we don't deserve, that we don't understand. Generosity that we just, quite frankly, can't, can't walk in, though we desire to increase in our generosity as the children of God and loving God and wanting to imitate God. We can't fathom this. We're, we're recipients of this. This is what he's done. God's grace knows no bounds. God's generosity knows no bounds. Right? This passage says, live generously. Give your bread to seven or eight. John chapter 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Matthew chapter 20, it, the text says, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. To give himself as a ransom for many. This passage is this incredible invitation to come to grips with our smallness so that our hearts and our minds can enjoy rest and renewal by contemplating God's greatness. And that's why in verse 5, verse 5 says, Hey, little person, breathe. (laughs) Verse 5 says, You can't understand the work of God, maker of things. Oh, man. We miss it in in English. Uh, We could just read that. Oh, you know, we can't understand the works of God, maker of things. But it's actually very comedic. It's actually, there's actually a use of humor here. By adding on the little maker of things, Solomon is, he's really laying it on thick, right, in the Hebrew language. That's what he's doing. It's, it's loaded. It's dripping with comedy. Because here's what's, com- here's what's comical. If you fall into the need of predicting the wind and pining after comfort and, and uh, that comes with the illusion of control then the very notion that God is in control is actually off-putting to you. And if I say, if I say the phrase, if I just said, you know, everybody relax, God's in control, immediately something rises up and like, well, hold on, I'm not sure, what about my, what about my free will? What about... Well, of course you have free will. God, God being sovereign doesn't negate your free will. In his great dignity, he gave man free will. Man used his free will to rebel against God. So now we're all born, not with the ability to save ourselves, but we're born dead, needing saving. And so, but if I say, God is in control, something rises up like that's somehow not good news. That's why, that's why Solomon adds on, maker of all things. You know, because if he, he's kind of like, if I just left it at, you can't know the ways of God. These little humans are going to be like, oh, I don't know, maybe I can't. He's like, I'm going to lay, lay it on really thick. Maker of all things. In the Hebrew, the maker of all things is Yaasa, which is a word that carries this present continuous force. So it doesn't mean God created everything like an inventor and he went and he walked away. Maker of all things means 
He's the source of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. The one who made you is the one who's sustaining you. Every time your heart beats and you breathe in this room, it's because the God of the cosmos is sustaining you. So you can actually relax because you can't know everything that he's up to because we're very small, he's very big, and that's actually supposed to provoke our little egos so that like little children who have a sliver and you're trying to get the sliver out and what does the child do? It has a death grip on the sliver and you're trying to pry their little fingers out so you can get the little sliver out. Solomon is trying to pry our little fingers out of the death grip we have on control. So you can be like, you know, there's a very liberating way to live. There's a very joyful and joyous way to live in the love and the grace of a God who created the cosmos who also has your life in his hands. And he's quite capable, quite capable actually. I know you think you'd be better at running the world than he is because you look out your window and you say, I don't think God's doing a very good job. But you see, you're very small. You're so small. And he is very great. And in his greatness, he didn't sit back and cross his arms on the throne and say, figure me out. He incarnated himself and he came generously, scandalously in Jesus Christ. He came as the bread, cast himself upon the waters. He came, gave him gave himself generously as the ransom for us all. So we're in good hands. We have a God who isn't in the business of holding back. We have a God who's in the business of giving himself. So he's got you. So breathe, church. You're in good hands. And this is what the, this is what the text ultimately is uh, provoking us to consider. The greatness of God. But, it's, but it's, com- it's, it's comedic because we don't like that idea. It's, it's offensive to us. Don't tell me that, don't tell me that uh, God is that big and he's in control and I can't know his ways. I, I'm a very intelligent person. I'm a very academic person. I can know his names. Well, it's like being a toddler. That's like saying, you know, a toddler could climb up into the seat of an air traffic controller and do their job, no problem. Pick a toddler. Pick a toddler that has, has arranged the blocks ABC and they could be an air traffic controller. That, that's about as hilarious as like, you know, I'm not sure God is in control. I'm not sure this. I'm not sure that. We're very small. You say, well, that sounds offensive. Well, it's not that, it's, it's not that the, the text is trying to offend us in the sense that it's demeaning us. It's trying to re- relocate our way of uh, understanding ourselves. This is a massive creature-creator distinction that's given. And it's given so that in a world where things are continually threatening you and things are continually weakening you, things are continually coming against you, things are continually draining you, your soul can find rest in the one who sustains you. That's the lesson of the burning bush. The sustaining God. If you're new to the scriptures, you've probably even heard of the burning bush, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush and catches Moses' attention because the, the bush isn't burning. You see, that's the point. The reason why Moses is like, what's going on here? Is because it's like, how is there fire without fuel? The ancient Egyptians weren't idiots. They were brilliant. Moses was raised in the courts of Pharaoh. He understands science. They, 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 you know, they built the pyramids. They, they did these incredible things. And, and Moses goes, there's fire, but it's not burning. What's fueling the fire? And God goes, exactly. I don't need anything to fuel me. I am the fuel. I don't need something to sustain me. I'm sustaining you, Moses. I'm sustaining you, KW Redeemer. I am that I am. 
This is God. This is how great and majestic and, and glorious this truth is. I'm the source of my own life, and you're dependent on me for life. Right? The grandness of God coming in Christ for us. Consider the greatness of his grace. Francis Collins is a geneticist who discovered some genes that were, that were uh, the cause of many diseases. And he was also part of the leading the Human Genome Project, where they studied, you know, uh, and uh, uh, not only study, but also uh, thoroughly kind of trying to coded human, uh, or unpack the code of human DNA. And in his book, Language of God, he says this, he says, um, the text of the human DNA strand is three billion letters long. If you read that code at a rate of three letters per second, it'd take you 31 years, day and night, to read it. Our God, sustainer of the universe, has come, given himself generously so that our lives could be in his great and capable hands. Physicist Freeman Dyson says this, the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known we were coming. This great God who created the universe, this great God who is the sustainer of everything, offers himself to you, church, not only forgiving you of all of your sin, but also saying, I will sustain you day to day. Your life is in my hands. I love you. I have adopted you. You're mine. 1988, scientists, the late Stephen Hawking, writes a book called The Brief History of Time. He says, even if, there's only, even if there was one possible unified theory, it's just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for us to describe? The overwhelming impression is one of order. The more we discover about our universe, the more we find it's governed by rational laws. And you still have the question, why does the universe bother to exist? If you like, you can define God to the answer to that question. Don't mind if I do. The text says, and the map that's still good says, the only way that it makes sense to cast your bread on the waters and live a generous outward-facing life is if this life isn't all that there is. Otherwise, your altruism and your generosity doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You say, oh yeah, well, Paul, it helps the, it helps the, the species survive. Uh, that's interesting, though. But if there is no God and we just evolved from nature, I'm looking at nature, and nature is nothing like that. In nature, the strong eat the weak all the time. If you're interested, there's some really good documentaries on Netflix right now. They prey on the weak. They wait for the weak to be at their most vulnerable point, and then they go in and they just feed on the weak. This is nature. The God of the cosmos sustains me. Don't tell me that I was a particle of matter and energy that somehow became, at some point, became self-aware. How did that happen? And don't add 18 trillion more years to tell me that's how it happened. You say, you're being condescending, you're being facetious. A little. I'm being comedic. This text is comedic. I'm in, tune, I'm in tune with the tone of this text. All right, get off my back. Don't write letters. This is, what, this is what Solomon's trying to get us to think about. You know how small you are? You're a cosmic fruit fly. Do you know how much rest there is if you just wake up every day and go, thank God my life is in the hands of God? Not a distant deity that doesn't know who I am, but a God who incarnated himself and came in Jesus Christ. And he lived the life I could never live. And he had died an atoning 
death for all of my sin, and he rose again on the third day bodily, which gives me the hope that I will rise one day bodily, who promises that he will restore all things and raise us to life to enjoy all things forever, restoring in the end, spoiler alert, what he created in the beginning. The whole Bible, it starts in a garden and it ends in a city. All of the ingenuity of man is just just a faint residue of what would have been had there not been sin. And that is the world that we will enjoy, the life that we want but we can't have, the bodies that we wish that we, that we had that we can't have, that don't break down and get sick, that's what God is restoring. He is the one that breathes the fire into the equations. Astrophysicist Robert Jostro wrote in the concluding paragraph of his book, God and Astronomers, At this moment it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. This is an astrophysicist uh, writing this. For the scientist who has lived by their faith in the power of reason, it ends like a bad dream. They've scaled the mountains of ignorance, and as they pull themselves over the final rock, they're greeted by a band of theologians that seem to have been sitting there for centuries. Not because we theologians have the answers. Because we beggars are pointing to the one who does. When we wave the white flag and we acknowledge our smallness, we're now candidates for the joy and the rest that there is in God's greatness. The apologist who was an atheist turned Christian, C.S. Lewis, he writes in The Problem of Pain, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. You see, your inability to understand how God is providentially, lovingly, sovereignly leading your life does not negate the fact that God is big and you are small and he is providentially, lovingly, sovereignly leading your life. He's that good. Now, I started this whole sermon with a... With a uh, quick story about a GPS, because I use it all the time because I'm terrible with directions. I'm horrifying. I'm, t- I'm, I'm terrible. Poor Susan, when we're driving, if it's a long drive, you know, we used to drive to Florida and stuff, she would like force herself to stay awake. I'd be like, babe, it's okay, you can sleep. She's like, I can't sleep. She's got to put toothpicks in. She's like, I don't know where, where we'll end up. There's no rest for the weary. I can't sleep with you at the wheel. And she's right. I I drive around the city. I've lived here for 22 years. I'm constantly making wrong turns because I get in the car and I just start thinking about stuff. My kids are in the back. They're like, Dad, turn left. One time, uh, before we planted Redeemer, I was driving to work. I went to drive Nigel to school. I'm like going down the road and I hear, "Uh, Dad? Oh my goodness, I gotta take you to school. Not bring your child to to work day. I'm terrible with directions. And so often, when we forget our smallness and God's greatness, and we somehow think that we are the ones with the greatness, we look out the window and we go, I'm not sure God knows where he's going. I'm not sure I can rest and relax in his grace. I'm not sure that with these things going on in my life, that my soul can find liberation in the, in, the, in the glorious grace of Jesus. I don't think that's possible because I've looked out the window and I'm not sure God knows where he's going. Well, unlike me, God always knows where he's going. 
got a tremendous track record of knowing precisely where he's going. He's a tremendous track record of perfect timing. You can offer up your prayers, close your eyes, and go to sleep. Because God knows what he's doing. He created you. He sustains you. He saves you. He adopts you. He loves you. And he knows where he's taking you. And this, of course, doesn't, you know, uh, negate our responsibility to be uh, wise and prudent and use the gifts that God has given us and be diligent and hardworking. It doesn't negate us of our human responsibility, but it simply is a point that enables us, as we are executing our human responsibility, to rest in God's tremendous sovereignty. So how do we live in light of this? How do we live in light of all this? We just live generously from hearts that have been awakened to the fact that God has dealt with us generously. Romans 8.32, For if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? And so when we rest in God's greatness and in his goodness, that God is good, that he does know where he's going, that we can offer up our prayers and go to sleep because he's not going to get us lost, we're going to relate to generosity in a very different way. So cast your bread upon the waters. Give to seven. Give to, give, to, give to eight. Christ giving his life is the shape of God's love towards you. And it's the fuel for your love towards others. Let's pray.